In a survey conducted in 24 countries, the UK has reported the second lowest level of trust in the media. And this is something which has been declining year on year since the survey was first conducted in the 1980s. So why is that? So much of our politics is determined by what's on the front page of the Daily Mail or being reported on BBC News, and yet none of us feel we can trust the professionals who have stewardship of our public conversation to tell us the truth. I'm here to make sense of the total mess that is UK media, and I can think of no one better to join me than my colleague, my comrade, my brother from another mother, Aaron Vistani. All right, so when did you first realise that media wasn't living up to its own ideals? I've probably got an atypical story, but for many people whose parents are immigrants, a typical story. So my father's Iranian, and he isn't the sort of stereotypical conspiracy theorist, Middle Eastern dad who thinks Britain and America are responsible for everything bad in the world, although he does have his moments. (laughs) But what, what he did do when I was young... There would be the news, right? It's in the background, the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news. And he just said, no, most of it's made up. Most of it's just garbage. Don't, don't pay attention to it. And that wasn't in regards to what they said. It wasn't like he had a side. He was just very skeptical about it, but in quite, um, quite an informed way. He wasn't saying, oh, they're all just full of lies. He just said, there's two sides to every story. He was quite contrarian, I suppose, in a, in a good way. So that was the default for me growing up. So it wasn't unusual to be around somebody who was skeptical of the media for a start, which actually many people in Britain, as I get older, it's changing a bit now, but the default is incredible credulity towards particularly broadcast media and to a lesser extent the papers. It's in the media, it must be true. Um, So that was there. And then I think for me it was Iraq. Mm. because despite what my dad said, despite often, you know, yeah, two sides to every story, et cetera, I thought generally speaking, like many industries, it's an industry, a profession where generally good people are trying their best to do the right thing. And there are constraints on that, but that's the same everywhere. And what the Iraq war did to me was reveal that both in politics and media, there are actually some very bad people who care more about winning, who care more about um, prevailing in the argument than actually what's, what's beneficial to the vast majority of people. So I'll give you an example. Alastair Campbell. Clearly, to this day, I think, he views what happened with the Iraq war as, I'm on this side, I'm on Tony's side, we have to win because we're winners. A million people have died in Iraq, but that was secondary. And I still don't think he's really, um, I don't think he's fully digested that. And so I think that was a big, big moment for me, recognizing the media for what it is. And then finally, the global financial crisis where I'd gone from my dad to some very bad people. And I think a bit more of a structural analysis whereby you say, this model just failed with neoliberalism, with the global financial crisis. And now the entirety of the press in the 2010 general election are calling for more austerity. They're calling for more of the thing that just didn't work. So yeah, it was in stages. I mean, for me, the first proper news story that I became aware of was the war on terror. So before that, of course, I remember when Princess Diana died and I remember the 1997 general election, but they were kind of these flashpoints. It wasn't a story which was going to develop and unfold and more events happen. But I remember coming home and watching the news on September 11th. And I remember the build up to the invasion of Afghanistan. Now, bear in mind, I'm like, 
eight, nine years old, something like that. And because I was a kid, I didn't have a sense of deference towards the media. They didn't have any particular high status. There were just some people on TV. And you know what? Peggy Mitchell was also on TV. So I didn't, I didn't hold these people in particularly high esteem. And I think that gave me an ability to see the gaps in the case for war in Afghanistan. Because you're eight and you're nine and you ask very simple questions and you realize that nobody can answer them. So for me, there was this massive gap where I was like, okay, I understand that terrorists carried out this attack in New York. And I understand that the Taliban are meant to be really bad people who supported these terrorists. But what has that got to do with the civilians in Afghanistan who are about to be invaded? It's not their fault. They're not responsible. They didn't do this thing. And nobody could explain to me why there was this collective responsibility on the part of Afghanistan and the part of its people. It wasn't anything which was even being addressed or named or referenced in any of the news coverage that I saw. And I found that a bit troubling at the time, but obviously I wasn't, you know, hugely, um, you know, you know, I was, I was eight, I was nine, I had more important things on my mind, like, will I ever get a Tamagotchi? <laughs> and then you see it with Iraq. I was a little bit older at this time. And for my mom especially, she'd gone from this total elation of seeing 18 years of Tory rule come to an end in 1997 to this really profound sense of betrayal with Iraq by a Labour government. And again, it was a case for war, which just didn't seem to make sense. I was like, well, hang on, if these people are so dangerous, if they can like kill us all in 45 minutes, why have we only just heard about it? We went from, um, you know, Princess Diana dying to 9-11 to Afghanistan to suddenly the most dangerous guy on earth is someone we only started talking about a month ago. This doesn't make sense to me. And so I think from that moment on, when I saw how the media participated in manufacturing consent for mm. things that even as a child I could see were deeply wrong, were going to lead to utter catastrophe and devastation for civilian populations and also didn't make sense on its own terms in terms of why does this country have to get involved in it. Mm. I never trusted the media again yeah, after I, that. I think it's so true. And particularly the experience of the war on terror showed this nexus of political interests in the media, right? Which has never gone away, I think, for our, I mean, I'm older than you, but our sort of generation, our cohort, and often people are very credulous of sort of politicians in the media. They say, well, you think they're all sort of baddies all on the same side. And it's like, that's kind of what happened in terms of prosecuting the argument for war in Iraq, where you did have, basically, in this country, every single newspaper, with the exception of the Daily Mirror and the Guardian, to a lesser extent, um, and arguably the Independent. But the big papers, the big, big papers, including, you know, supposedly thoughtful, sort of moderate papers like The Times, they shilled for war. They shilled for a war that never made sense, was never in this country's interest. And they shilled for war, which was basically being driven by the most right-wing people in a foreign country, for an attack that happened in a foreign country. You know, you have to remember, for our, long, our younger uh, listeners and viewers, the 9-11 attacks, I think, had 19 people, I think, best of my recollection. 
I think 15 of them were Saudi Arabian nationals. There was not one Iraqi. There was not one Afghan. Yet these were the two countries which were attacked. And for me as a teenager, I was like, this is clearly insane. And yet the media and the political class have completely converged around it. And when I say the political class, again, it's really fashionable now to bash Jeremy Corbyn, bash the left. It was the entire political class. We, we went to war in Iraq because it had the votes from both Labour and the Conservative parties. There was a consensus on it. And there's never been a reckoning with it. And so when, so when journalists say, oh, you know, you're, you're so down on the media, you know, why? It's honestly hard to believe. There's a great podcast that came out, I think, a year or two ago with David Dimbleby um, about the lead up in the war to Iraq. It's extraordinary. My jaw drops every single episode. Um, and I think you're right. That is, that is probably, probably the seminal moment in terms of declining trust in the media, particularly for people, I think, under, say, 45, 50. So one of the things which I didn't remember from when it happened at the time, and then I was recently looking into it again, and then it kind of came crashing back to me, was what happened between 10 Downing Street and Andrew Gilligan, who I think was working on the Today programme, certainly at Radio 4, during the time of uh, the Iraq war. Because, of course, BBC impartiality and attacks on the BBC in the name of impartiality mm. on the part of the government is massive news at the moment. Yeah. We've seen it with Gary Lineker. We've seen it in terms of you know, various conservatives saying that the BBC was never pro-Brexit enough or disparaging of the case for leaving the EU. And, you know, quite... I think, um, sneakily, you've got the likes of Alistair Campbell jumping on the bandwagon in defense of the BBC. Because what he has been canny enough to realize is that people have forgotten how he behaved during the time of the lead up to the war in Iraq. So studies have been done over the tenor of the BBC's coverage, and it has been conclusively proven that it was much more pro-war than it was anti War, yeah. right? It took a line which was more supportive of the government than it was critical of the government. And one of the brief times where there was some criticism was when Andrew Gilligan said that number 10 knew that the dodgy dossier, as it's now since been known, which claimed on the basis of totally falsified intelligence uh, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction which could be launched within 45 minutes. Andrew Gilligan said, number 10 news, knew that this was sexed up, right? They knew that this was not true. Now, the thing that he said was, I think, eminently correct. He couldn't, however, justify it in terms of, and here is the smoking gun, which proves that they knew that it was all horseshit. What Alistair Campbell and the government did was turn on the BBC and make it an issue, an issue of impartiality. And it meant that I think a chair and director general had to resign mm. at that time. It was really drumming out some of those senior staff mm. because what you had was a journalist say something which was blindingly obvious and true. And sure, there was... Um, bad journalistic practice in the sense of he couldn't absolutely conclusively prove it at the time, but he said something that was true, it was critical of the government, and then this hammer of impartiality came down on his head. And this kind of leads me to a question which I really want to put to you, which is, what does impartiality yeah. really mean? Yeah. I think it's one of the most toxic words in the British media debate because the point of the media is to get to the facts. It's to get to the truth. That's the point, right? Now, you can say in some instances the truth is subjective, there's two sides to the story. Of course, 
Of course. But that is a classic example of the pursuit of impartiality masking and obstructing the pursuit of the truth. Uh, and you see the exact same thing with regards to the Gary Lineker story. Okay, now we can have a debate about whether the, the word to use is right or wrong, but surely the appropriate debate is, well, okay, is there any veracity to what he's saying? Mm. That's the appropriate debate. If if he's incorrect, then of course he should be corrected, or perhaps they're, they're not the ideal words you'd say. Okay, let's have that debate rather than, well, he should be impartial. I, I do believe, by the way, in BBC impartiality, but I think we're so far away from it, and we can talk about that later on, that I, you know, I think it's a secondary debate. Um, so on the Gilligan stuff, I mean, look, again, it's easy to forget. And it's easy to forget because powerful people don't want us to remember this. The idea that Iraq, this is a country in West Asia, could launch intercontinental ballistic missiles and hit this country with nuclear weapons is so insane. It's <laughs> one of the most insane things that anybody's ever come up This was a This was a country with no real documented history of a nuclear weapons program, a proper one had no history of launching a satellite into space, had no history of intercontinental ballistic missile technology, um, I, I didn't have an advanced scientific base to sort of to get to that level, had no known launch sites. Mad. And then you started to get into this even more crazy, well, they have these moving trucks. Oh my God, I can, remember that. And it's like, what are you, like? A, a, there's no evidence for this, but it's like, that is more, more technically difficult to execute than the thing they can't do anyway. It, it's so insane, the moving trucks. And then, and, but it was always so evasive, right? They'd have lied from one, one point to the other. Well, they might not have the moving trucks, but they could make a dirty bomb that doesn't need ICBM technology, the, the missile launch technology. Well, okay, I mean, this is just, so, it was crazy. It was insane. I think that the case study of Iraq tells you something about how media really works. What is going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain? So I was listening to a podcast called Slow Burn, which looked just at the build-up uh, before the war in Iraq. And one of the things that it looked at was this kind of Washington network of neocons, right? The neoconservatives who had had Iraq on their hit list for decades, all right? This wasn't simply a post-9-11 thing. 9-11 uh, became a pretext for them to do the things that they already wanted to do. And what you had were soirees and salons where you had military staff, you had political advisors, you had uh, neoconservative or neoconservative sympathetic thinkers and journalists like Christopher Hitchens, for instance. And you also had Iraqi dissidents whose families had been, you know, either brutally suppressed or exiled by Saddam Hussein. And it was some of these uh, Iraqi dissidents who kind of knew if they started telling stories which were more and more fantastical and dangerous, right? So there are these uh, roving chemical weapons labs going through the desert on the back of trucks, or, um, you know, there's a intercontinental ballistic missile, which will take, you know, 45 minutes to launch and destroy London, that there existed an entire network of really powerful individuals who would use this as a case for regime change. Yeah. And that was what was going on behind the scenes. And if you're somebody who is consuming media, you're not part of elite Washington circles. You weren't in the orbit of, you know, Christopher Hitchens or Colin Powell or whoever else it was. You would have no idea that this was what was going on. You would only read the news and go, shit. 
45 minutes. Shit, dirty bomb. Oh my God. Uh, chemical weapons uh, labs on the, back, on the back of trucks. And what you would have no idea about is that there is quite literally a social scene, which is pumping all of this into the public sphere. Another name that comes to mind here is Kamal Ahmed, who was at The Observer when um, the war in Iraq began. And Nick Davies in Flat Earth News documents very clearly and persuasively, I think, extraordinarily close relationships between him and Number 10 Downing Street, Alastair Campbell, and so on. He's clearly, according to Nick Davies, politically amenable to them. And I, I think at times it, it, I think there's a good argument to say he's really running propaganda for the government of the day. That's the, the argument Nick Davies makes, and I think it's very persuasive of Kamal Ahmed ever wants to come on Navarro Media and you know debate that he's more than welcome to. Now, what does Kamala Ahmed do after he finishes The Observer? Well, he goes and works for the EHRC. Mm. EHRC, okay. What does he do after that? He goes to work at the BBC as their economics editor. Then he becomes a very senior person. I think he has a director-level job at the BBC until 2021. So you think, rather than actually being punished or being held accountable for what happened, those are the people who in the subsequent 15, 20 years percolated right to the top of Britain's liberal establishment. And I know that people in the centre-left don't like to talk about this, but there are liberal institutions and there is a liberal establishment, just as there's a conservative establishment. And if you're going from the Observer to the EHRC to the BBC, you're part of that quote-unquote liberal establishment. And, and there are so many stories like that. And, and I, you know, it does make you wonder, what would have to happen for people in the media and in politics to actually face scrutiny and accountability? If it's not Iraq, and it, they clearly aren't, right? They're, they're failing upwards. I mean, you talked about Alistair Campbell. My God. You know, that man is now presenting the first and second most popular podcasts on Spotify and iTunes, right? He spent, what, the last sort of 15 years assiduously cultivating this, oh, let's talk about depression. Let's talk mm. about depression. Oh, I like to go walk and I see trees and it helps my depression. Now he's done that thing. Oh, let's stop Brexit. Now he's done that thing. You know, he's done the whole, like, Brand refresh, he's, he's gone back into sort of big P politics. And I think if there's a Labour government with Starmer as PM, Alastair Campbell is going to be a very, very big public figure defending them. How did that happen? How did that happen? I mean, I, I think about this with Alastair Campbell a lot because he's become this crusader for honesty and integrity in, in politics. And I go, Alastair Campbell? That would be like Harold Shipman opining on having a good bedside manner. Right? It is totally absurd and insulting. And I think that when you want to explain why trust in the media today is so low, and also how the Conservative government is able to operate with the kind of impunity that it does, you have to say, well, actually, the demolition of norms and standards of accountability really begins with new labour. Mm. Right? You, you have to be honest with yourself and say, you know, if... The Conservatives can avoid scrutiny if they can tell absolutely brazen lies, if they can try and bully the BBC away from telling inconvenient truths. Well, that's just borrowing from the Blair Campbell playbook. Mm. I think that's true. And I think it's something that, you know, Peter Hitchens, in his book, The Abolition of Britain, we've had him on here. People say, why are you inviting Peter Hitchens on? And he has some very strange opinions about daytime savings and about, you know, uh, the, the Nazi party actually being left-wing racist, whatever. His stuff on Britain from the late 1990s, which was drawn really out of reportage as well, because he was there at the time, 
really does, it shows and demonstrates a sea change in how government in this country was conducted. I think some of it was for the better. He wouldn't agree with that, like devolution, right? But some was very much for the worse. The politicization of the civil service, the creation of special advisors. You know, at, at Blair, this is something of a deviation, but it, it, I think it shows you the extent to which they corrupted the real foundations of doing politics. Not politics, not policy. How you do politics, they corrupted. You know, Blair had this new thing called the delivery unit. Um, when he went into Downing Street. And the delivery unit was basically just consultants. You know, and we have a, you know, a big problem in this country with outsourcing and the sort of consultification of politics starts with New Labour. It's very hard for the left to understand this. Well, oh, you spent more tax on the NHS. Great. Very, great. I'm happy. Okay. But this is a really bad thing. And it's a really bad thing, particularly because, like I say, it's about how you do politics. And, and that has only got worse over time. And he opened the door to it. Um, it's a big, big, big shift to what you get with the Conservatives, even in the 1980s. Margaret Thatcher, a megalomaniac, and I, I think a lot of the, the writing identifying her really as a sort of, you know, democratically enabled fascist, I think there's, I think there's a lot to that. Um, but I think with Thatcher, what you get is a sui generis politician. She's a figurehead that comes from nowhere, almost like a revolutionary figure in a way. But like I say, I think the difference between her and New Labour is it's a new kind of way of doing politics, conducting politics. Politics is permanent public relations, which is very different. And in a way, in a way, I'm not saying more insidious, in a way more insidious. So one of the things we know about the media from being consumers is that you're meant to tell the truth and yet it is packed to the brim with lies. So who can you lie about? on TV or in the newspapers and get away with it? Well, you know this better than I do because you're in TV studios far more than I am these days. I've been blacklisted. I'm obviously insufficiently charismatic to get away with it. Like That's why you're mentally healthier than me. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's, it's possibly one variable. I couldn't comment. Um, certainly not being in, the, in, the, in proximity to lots of these people doesn't hurt when it comes to mental health. Um, who can you lie about? You can lie about the left and you can lie about powerless people. Now, it's um, tempting to say, and the converse is true. And you can't lie about the right and you can't lie about the powerful. But it's worse than that because you can't tell the truth about the powerful either. And a really beautiful distillation of this was recently with Fiona Bruce on BBC Question Time. You know, you have panel shows where they, they say the most ridiculous things which are factually incorrect. Fiona Bruce has said things, for instance, regarding Labour polling. I remember in 2018, 2019, she was saying things which were factually incorrect. We're literally talking about numbers, quantitative data, you're right or wrong, okay? Nothing happens. But when um, Yasmin Alipai Brown, a, a journalist, I think most recently The Independent, says, you know, the truth about Stanley Johnson assaulting his wife and breaking her nose, this only happened once. Not, we, we, to the best of our knowledge, this only happened once, which in itself is still disgusting, but at least it's, I understand it's a legal caveat. This only happened once. You know, this is exactly the wording that Stanley Johnson himself would use. So that's how bad it is. You can't just lie about the left, lie about the powerless. You can't tell the truth about the powerful. I mean, I, just to pick up on that theme, one of the things which I think was profoundly depressing about my interactions with media is that the person who is meant to be the kind of umpire, so the Fiona Bruce figure or, you know, Joe Coburn, whoever else it is, has got a really high threshold uh, when it comes to bullshit being peddled about Jeremy Corbyn. So people can misrepresent 
things that he's said, things that he's done, things that have been said about him. And there'll be absolutely no intervention. So then it's up to me to say, hang on, this thing isn't true. But because I've been brought on as a partisan, and that's appropriate, I am a partisan, it then means that me saying something is wrong mm. as a point of fact, not merely interpretation is mistrusted. And this is something which happened on Politics Live just recently, which is we were talking about Jeremy Corbyn being barred from standing as the MP in Islington North. And in the motion, uh, which had been submitted by Keir Starmer, there's no mention of anti-Semitism at all. And I think that this is a really pertinent fact, because what we know is that everybody was going to be discussing it as though him being barred was because of the handling of the anti-Semitism crisis or the EHRC um, investigation into Labour. But it's not mentioned in the motion. So I think that this is a really critical point of fact. It's not finicking around with precise details. It gets right to the heart of the matter, which is if this is about racism, why aren't you mentioning it? Well, one suggestion might be, that's because that would be open to legal challenge and the Labour Party wouldn't be confident of their case. Now, that calls into question the entirety of how politics and political media has understood and narrativized the anti-Semitism yeah. crisis, right? So this is actually, I think, a pretty big deal. They have a vested interest in not doing this story properly, right? Not covering that motion properly because, of course... Then they would have to look at some of their own practice. Yeah. Now, when I started raising this, going, well, why isn't it in here? Joe Coburn first said, well, this is just a process matter. And I was like, no, it's not a process matter. And then it's kind of like, you know, being rounded on by a load of sheepdogs, right? And you're the sort of errant lamb because you've suddenly got, you know, Seb Payne, who used to be at the Financial Times, is now director of a right-wing think tank, Kelsipres. You have He's also, by the way, he's going to be a Conservative Party MP Absolutely. At some point. He's going to be. Anyway, sorry. I mean, no, he, he absolutely is. You had a Conservative MP and you had uh, Siobhan McDonough, who's a, a right-wing Labour MP. And suddenly they're, they're all rounding on you and it's about anti-Semitism and they can say whatever factually incorrect stuff they like, right? It's just stuff which is wrong on a point of fact. This isn't about the interpretation. This isn't about, you know, is Jeremy Corbyn this or is he not this? It's, you know, saying that, well, he never apologised. Well, actually, he apologised an awful lot and in many different ways, putting words into his mouth that he plainly didn't say, um, you know, drawing conclusions from the EHRC report which weren't in there. And so when you're in my position and you're the partisan who's kind of there to articulate a left-wing point of view, me saying this stuff is wrong isn't trusted and the umpire, the presenter, isn't intervening to say this is untrue. And... This isn't just about going, oh, they can lie about Jeremy Corbyn with impunity, right? They can. It's also about lying to their audience yeah. about an entire political movement, right? Something which is much bigger than Jeremy Corbyn or me or anybody else. It's lying about what happened 2015 to 2019. Because if you were to say, okay, let's say I agree with everything that you have said about anti-Semitism. Let's say I agree with everything you've said about Jeremy Corbyn. Why is it he came to become leader of the Labour Party? Well, it's because of failures in politics and mm. failures in media. Mm. Right? You can't look at that. 
right? You, that's unutterable. It's something which has to be drummed out of political media. And I think you've put it very well where you've talked about the anti-Semitism discussion being this like electric fence that any time you try and approach it or any time you try and interact with it or any time you try and talk about something else, mm. it shocks you. Mm. And that is something that people in the media are totally complicit in. And I don't always know if they know they're doing it. I don't always know if it's deliberate or calculated. I think for some people it is and for others it isn't. But that is what's happening. I think as well, and I, look, let's dr drill down into that appearance because I found the whole thing so unprofessional. It was ridiculous. The whole thing was ridiculous. I understand the two MPs being partisan in a way, right? I understand Siobhan McDonough being nasty, even whatever, right? She's that faction. She thinks she represents a certain subsection of the population, members, whatever. And ditto with the Conservative MP. You know, I never really understood why people dunked on conservative Brexiteers who were quite belligerent and were saying, you know, we're going to have Brexit. That, that's literally, the people who vote them in office, that's broadly what they wanted, okay? A lot of them. So park the MPs. Seb Payne, he's not a, a fair broker. He's not an honest broker. Like many of these people, they're being presented as journalists and, you know, pollsters or people in think tanks. He, he was actively, I can say this now, he was actively looking to become a Conservative Party candidate and he still is. Right? And that was before, you know, that's before 2024. And I think he's going to go after that. He's looking to be a Conservative Party MP. So park all of that. It's down to Joe Coburn, right? She's meant to say, well, actually, no, no, put people in their place. And so, which look, she does sometimes, but on subjects like, for instance, yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, they're generally useless um, to, to a quite extraordinary extent. Now, when that happens, you have a few options. You can call them all liars. You can sort of question the whole structure of the debate. You won't get invited on again. You won't. You know, I had something very similar happen to me with regards to, guess what, Labour anti-Semitism on the BBC. We were asked so much to do this, this story when it was happening between 2015, well, particularly after 2017, 2019. They stopped wanting to talk about policy, just Labour anti-Semitism. And I said repeatedly, look, I'm not Jewish. Speak to somebody in the Labour Party who's Jewish. Whatever their perspective, it's going to be more valuable than mine. Sure, I have my thoughts. I've kind of said them right? If people want to know what I think, they can find them. Um, but it, it never happened. And then once I went on to Radio 4, and I, I basically, some of the things she was saying, I said, no, you're factually wrong on this, 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 and this. And rather than criticize the other person, I criticized basically the host. That was it. End of story. And I did BBC Radio 5 recently. And the guy literally said to me on the phone, he said, you used to do more of this, right? I said, yeah. He goes, we've lost your details. <laughs> I wonder why, right? I wonder why, because I'm sure the minute that interview finished or that, I think it was World at One, I think, finished, we're not getting him on again. He was so impolite. You know, he said I wasn't doing my job properly. Well, guess what? You weren't. But you, you, can't, you can't say that. It's outrageous. He said I wasn't doing my job properly. Do your job properly. Because you're not, you're not informing the public. If the public is not properly informed, then you're failing in your job. But if you say this to a journalist, they how dare you? I mean, I think this is a really important point, which is that there are these rules of politeness and no one, you know, goes after their own. And that governs how political media operates, which mm. is that journalists, once they're on the inside of the golden circle, mm. are remarkably hands off with each other. Mm. So it doesn't matter that it's, you know, well known that this journalist has been, you know, 
in a relationship with this conservative MP or that this journalist is looking for a safe conservative party seat. These are things which don't get uttered in the public's hearing because we're all in it together and these other lot are outsiders. Mm. And seeing as we're sharing a little bit about our personal experiences of the media, let me give you an example. So again, this was on Politics Live and this must have been 2018, 2019, something like that. And on the panel was myself, a former Blair speech writer who shares a name with the drummer of Genesis, and Kwasi Kwarteng, who was at the time a backbencher and someone who was broadly supportive of the Liberal Democrats. Um, I, I don't remember her name. And one of the sections of the show was, are the hard left nasty? Mm. Are they uniquely nasty? Mm, of course we are. And it was because a protester had shouted at a far-right activist. And so this deserved, you know, a quarter or a third of the time of a daily politics television show, which I thought was kind of nuts, but whatever. And obviously, as the ambassador for the hard left, everyone's talking to me. And I was trying to say, well, look, politics is contestation. It's antagonistic. That's something which is true across every single wing and every single faction. I don't know why you're so surprised. And everyone was giving it large about integrity and politeness and standards and nastiness and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, whatever, right? I'm here to be chum in the water, right? You guys can be sharks. Meanwhile, there is this ongoing, uh, you know, kind of needling beef between Kwasi Kwarteng and the former Blair speechwriter, mm. where Kwasi Kwarteng kind of theatrically brings from his blazer pocket a copy of an article uh, that had been written by this former speechwriter in the Times where he'd gotten something wrong. He'd made a prediction, I think it was about Jeremy Corbyn, and it, it didn't come true. And what was funny about this is that it really got under the skin of this former Blair speechwriter. And I get it, it's on telly, someone's showing you up a bit. But we all make predictions which are wrong. I mean, I've genuinely thought that Spurs were going to win the league in 2016, all right? I too have made predictions which have not come to pass. But there was something about this slight to his ego which really wound him up. So then the live show ends, cameras stop rolling. And just as we're leaving the set, this former Blair speechwriter, he's slams his hands down on the desk and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, swearing, shouting, hurling abuse at Quasi Quarteng for having, you know, done this stunt with the article. And I was looking at him and I was shocked because this is a professional setting. You know, you're supposed to, you know, participate in a bit of sparring on the show and then generally what everyone does is you know you shake hands you leave that's that yeah. but he's screaming at the top of his lungs and then I'm looking around and nobody else is reacting as though a man's going insane in front of us mm. and I turn to Joe Coburn who's the BBC presenter and she goes Poor speechwriter. I think Quasi rather got under his skin, didn't he? Like a kind of indulgent school mom. And in my head, I'm going, what the fuck is wrong with you people? One, this is insanely unprofessional behavior, mm. right? I would never 
do this. And if I did, not only would I never be invited back, you'd probably call the police and make sure Guido Fawkes knew about it too. And two, you've just gone on and on and on about the nastiness of the so-called hard left. Mm. And here is the sensible centrist type who is, you know, like the little angry fella from inside out, right? The head is exploding, mm. steam coming out of his ears. And you're all looking at it like it's normal. I mean, for me, that tells you something about the hidden rules that govern political media, which is if you're inside, you can do anything. Yeah. You can do absolutely anything. And if you're on the outside, you can be as polite as you like. And I make an effort to be really polite and really friendly whenever I'm in those spaces, not because I necessarily like everybody, but because I know I'm going to be held to an impossibly high standard. But I'm still looked at as though... I'm a machete-wielding barbarian, mm. whereas somebody who is part of the establishment can behave like, you know, screeching banshee, and nobody blinks an eye. I think a big part of it as well is centrists are the worst. <laughs> centrists are the worst. That, Of course, conservatives do that, people on the left do that, I'm not suggesting otherwise. But it, it's been a tendency from my experiences in the media, they are the most personally hostile strange of the lot. Right? Can, you, can you tell me any stories about yeah, that I happening? Tell, I can tell you lots of stories. You know, I mean, we've both encountered lots of people on the conservative right, right, in the media, who on a personal level, I'm not saying their politics, on a personal level, perfectly affable, perfectly charming, right? Jacob Rees-Mogg, perfectly, of course, why wouldn't he be affable and charming and happy? His life is wonderful. He lives two minutes away from the House of Commons. He has, like, paid work, uh, nanny and everything. They're all doing, like, raising his children. He, he's a multi-millionaire. Why wouldn't the man be happy and very charming, you know, and well-read and courteous? Why wouldn't he? has got no excuse not to be. It's not like he's, you know, a thousand pounds into his overdraft working a 70-hour week. Then you can be grouchy. You know, very charming, affable guy. Uh, Andrew Neil, we can talk about him. Again, politically, I disagree with him to a significant extent. I think he's a bit overrated. I think he's basically built a career off the back of Murdoch. But again, he would be an interesting dinner party guest. You could talk about... Thatcher, the 80s, what he was doing at the Sunday Times, whopping, all that stuff. It would be interesting to hear about. I would push back and disagree with lots of it, but it would be interesting. Now, Liz Kendall. <laughs> Liz Kendall. You know, I was. Liz Kendall would not piss on you if you were on fire. No. <laughs> Liz Kendall. I met, who was it? It was Portillo, Andrew Neil. Um, we were doing BBC This Week. Perfectly charming men. Charming and kind because they are totally secure about their class position. Totally. They have wonderful lives. They're very wealthy. They don't need to be angry. Liz Kendall, as I'm literally sharing a whiskey with Andrew Neil, she can't look me in the eye. She literally couldn't say hello. She couldn't say one word to me. Now, I've said this before, my sort of theory for this is, that these people's sense of identity is under attack from our mere presence. So it's not a political disagreement, right, with Portillo or Neil, it's a political disagreement. For Liz Kendall, it's, I'm the left-wing person in this room. I'm one of the goodies. I'm the person demanding social justice. That's the way it's been for 20 years until nasty Jeremy Corbyn and your mob came along. You need to get back in your box. So it's, 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 it's about their identity being at stake. And I, I think lots of sort of quote-unquote people in the centre, you know, when you think somebody in the centre, you think, quite nice, charming. Moderate. Moderate, reasonable, you know, prudent person. Jeremy Corbyn, in his personal life, very calm, nice man, right? I've just said to you, Jacob Rees-Mogg in a conversation, perfectly like affable, 
nice guy. Then you get people like Philip Collins, who are somehow held up by our cultures, like the moderate, sensible people. They're the most bad shit of all <laughs> in their personal lives, partly because they're the most entitled, partly because they're also highly, you know, confused. I mean, Philip, Philip Collins, I don't know the chap. I don't know him. He may be a very nice man. But every time I've, I've, I've sort of come across his path or seen him on TV, he looks miserable. He looks angry constantly. And, and, I, and I think, you know, something's got to explain that. I mean, I could go on with the whole centrist thing. It's not, we need progressive centrist politicians in this country doing a good job. I don't want to shit on all of them because realistically, the left, if it's anywhere near power, needs those guys doing the job. I want people like Biden. Charming old guy. Again, I'm not saying Biden gets it all right. Charming old guy. You know, some left-wing politicians. Great. Sign me up. That's not what the center in this country looks like. You know, they're the most sort of unhinged, frothing at the, at the mouth, people of all when it comes to our political discourse. Well, this is something which I wanted to ask you directly, which is if you had to say, which was the bigger barrier to social progress, the mm. Daily Mail or the Guardian, where would you come down? I'd have to be incredibly controversial, so the, the Guardian. I sincerely believe that. Since 2015, I sincerely believe that in this country. Now, the Guardian has broken some hugely important stories, the Windrush scandal, Amelia Gentleman. You know, they did a story in the last couple of days about uh, the Confederation of British Industry. They break important stories. This is not um, a, a criticism of their reporting. But if you look at their politics desk, if you look at how they report on the Labour leadership after 2015, if you look at basically how they tried to leverage the issue of Brexit to fuck a, a, a political faction, that's what they did, right? Sod what happens to the country after once, you know, once we've left the European Union, I think that was grotesquely irresponsible what they did, particularly them and the Observer, misleading their readership into believing that Brexit could be stopped. And I believe they did that on purpose in order to um, unseat the Labour leader. I sincerely believe that. And so if you're asking me who's been the bigger barrier to progressive change in, the, in this country since 2015, for me, it's The Guardian without a shadow of a doubt. So what's the history of The Guardian like? Because I've, obviously it started out as the Manchester Guardian. It was centred around Manchester, which was the industrial centre and also the kind of beating heart of the Labour movement. What happens to The Guardian over the decades and centuries. Hold on, you haven't said which one you think is more of a barrier to progressive change. Um, I would have to say The Guardian for how it disciplines the edge of what's progressive and politically possible. So when it comes to the Daily Mail, I know exactly who and what they are, and I know what line they're going to take. It's going to be one which feeds into people's prejudices it's going to be one which says, here's an underclass of subhuman scum and we're going to shit on them from a great height. And if you want to be a real, decent, authentic, working class bloke, you've got to go along with what all these Eton educated elites say is best for the country. All right, that's what the Daily Mail does and it will do it in its various forms again and again and again. Whereas The Guardian will say it wants something like free school meals, up until the point that a politician says, I'm going to deliver that for you. Yeah. You know, it will say that it wants um, global peace, that it respects civilian life, up until something like the Iraq war comes along and a significant portion of its editorial staff will be in favour of the Iraq war. Of course, there was the split between the Observer and the Guardian at that time. And then you look at something like its coverage 
of transgender people. And because you have had what few trans people who worked at The Guardian being drummed out of its offices, and you have had women who are a lot more well-off, middle class, have been working in media for a long time, who I think have some sincere beliefs that puts them at odds with trans rights activists, but also feel a sense of their own status being threatened Mm. by the rise of an intersectional feminism, which says, actually, it's not very well off white women like yourself who should be at the front of the movement. It's women who have experienced transphobia, poverty, racism, ableism, all that kind of thing. There's a a threat of status there. Mm. And because of their position within The Guardian, the high status within The Guardian, and The Guardian's unique role in British progressive politics, it means that The Guardian is able to cut off and determine the edge of progressive politics. And that is very, very bad. Mm. And it's gotten much worse in the last 10 years. It's gotten much worse since, uh, let's be real, since Kat Viner became the editor there. I can say that because they're they're never going to commission me, right? And and if you look at The Observer, I mean, wow. My book, I think, was really instructive. I I had no expectations about my book or, you know, despite what people might think who are watching or listening. Believe it or not, I'm not a particularly narcissistic person. I was very, I felt privileged to be able to write a book and just put it out there and great. I'm happy with it. I think it adds value. What you thought to me mattered, what like several dozen people thought mattered. And that's why actually while writing it, I took people's feedback and it made it a much better book. But I didn't care what like, you know, the Times or The Guardian says. Now, The Guardian actually wrote a very positive, uh, I should say, wrote a very positive um, review. Andy they won't Beckett. be doing that again. Andy Beckett wrote a very positive, well, they're welcome to do what they like. The Observer didn't even review it, which was really interesting. So the Financial Times reviews it. I get to write an op-ed in The New York Times. The Times reviews it. The Atlantic talks about it. I do a TED talk. So, you know, in the, in the US liberal media, it's kind of a thing. But The Observer, which is meant to be, quote unquote, the liberal sort of, you know, Sunday paper in this country, which it's the worst newspaper in this country, The Observer. It's the worst newspaper. It doesn't do any reporting. No, it doesn't. It doesn't do, literally doesn't do any original news gathering. It's called, guys, it's called a newspaper, okay? The clue is in the name. You're meant to find the news. Um, and they, they didn't review the book. And I just thought, God, that is so funny. That is so funny that, you know, of all the papers that didn't review it, it was you guys. The FT reviewed it. John McTurner reviewed it. Because at least, you know, he, he has a curiosity about ideas. The FT at the time, this is obviously, there was the Corbyn leadership. Okay, well, these people run one of the two largest parties in the, in the country, the left. This guy is involved in that. Okay, well, what, what are they thinking? What are they saying? Okay, let's, let's give it, not a hearing, but let's at least be aware of it. The Observer doesn't think like that. I think that there are some really particular problems with the Observer, right? Not breaking news is one of them. Um, I mean, for for a while, it would commission a poll and then report on the results of the poll as front page news on a Sunday, Mm -hmm. which when you're competing with the Sunday Times, which has put some money and investment behind its investigations team, is embarrassing. It's totally and utterly embarrassing. But I do think there is a structural problem with news media, which has been decades in the making. So the profit margins on running a newspaper have absolutely been decimated. And one is the internet, two is, you know, 
it's just not in people's you know habits anymore right it's, it's something which is you know declining and yet to run a newspaper is to have a huge amount of influence over politics in whatever country you happen to be in and something which i say again and again is nobody buys a newspaper or a news channel because they want to make a profit that's not why rupert murdoch's in it that's not why viscount rotham is in it that's not why the barclay brothers are in it it is to wield power now every newsroom has experienced these pressures of a decline in ad revenue and a decline in sales um, difficulty in monetizing its digital reach, even if it's very, very good, and it has to make certain decisions, which is, are you going to put it behind a paywall, which also lessens some of your political influence and your impact, or are you going to you know, make cuts somewhere? And what you've seen is that news gathering, original news gathering capacity has been slashed across UK media. And that's the case in terms of local newspapers, that's the case of national newspapers, that's the case of BBC local radio stations, it's the case of, you know, the BBC national team as well. And so when you absolutely gut original news gathering, it means that those really important stories that you've been discussing, whether it's Windrush or WikiLeaks or phone hacking, or whether it's something which is much more local, those become fewer and farther between. And what ends up happening is that the news desk and the politics desk, in particular the Westminster desk, are indivisible. So what is it which is going to be leading on the front page of most new newspapers most days? It's going to be something that the politics team has come up with. And politics desks, what they're putting forward is dictated by a really, really small number of journalists. Yeah. And I know I'm not telling you anything new, but maybe for our listeners, it's the lobby. Yeah. Now, I know this sounds very shady and it sounds very like, ooh, it's conspiratorial, but this is their actually name. This is a select handful of journalists who have lobby passes. It means they can access the parliamentary estate. They've got uh, offices in the press gallery of parliament and they're the people who are in Westminster all the time, running around like wasps at a picnic. And these are people who enjoy remarkably high status in the media, all right? Laura Koonsberg or, you know, Tim Shipman, they can walk around like celebrities, all right? You know, they're the Angelina Jolie of uh, UK media. And these are people who come from a really, really narrow social background, overwhelmingly white, disproportionately privately educated, disproportionately having gone to Oxbridge. And in terms of the political breadth, right? The spectrum of reasonable opinion runs from new labor to crypto fascist, all right? Yep. That is the range of the parliamentary lobby. And these are the individuals who cultivate really close relationships with political sources, and that means being chummy with them. Um, these are the people who basically set the agenda of the politics desk and therefore the news desks. And their own practices are subject to remarkably little scrutiny. And I think that this is a structural problem within yeah. UK media. I happen to think that the Observer is particularly bad for this. I mean, the Observer's uh, politics desk is an absolute joke. You know, for many years, I believe their only real source was Neil Coyle. And that's why mm. he popped up in every Toby Helm piece that was being written, the uh, editor of the Observer. Um, but I don't think that 
this structural problem is unique to the observer. Particularly bad things about it, but not alone. What you're saying there, just to recapitulate everything you just said is, <clears throat> I think that's right, there is a problem with regards to the economics of information. People are no longer or they're less willing to pay for information, particularly with regards to daily newspapers. We have at the same time austerity to public service broadcasting like the BBC. All of this combined makes lobby journalists actually more influential because original news gathering isn't happening. And that this itself is actually quite toxic because it leads to a far more myopic way of covering and doing politics. I agree with all of that. I would also say that if you look at something like the New York Times, which has a paywall, and I think it has, what, 10 million subscribers, there, there is a different way of doing it, right? And I think that's quite recent. Until 2014, 2015, 2016, people felt like, actually, you had to be free. You had to be free, otherwise you can't do good news. I think we're now, you can't get a big audience, rather. I think we're now at a point where, actually, if you, if you want a healthy democracy and you think journalism is a public good, this is probably a really bad way to operate. Um, and, and I think it has, it's coming now with, with major downsides. The New York Times, you know, their, their, their original line was all the news that's fit to print. I think now it's something more akin, they still have that. But there's another one too, like news worth paying for. Is the Observer news worth paying for? Would you pay for the Observer? Absolutely not. You couldn't pay me to read it half the time. No. Would I pay for the FT? Of course I would. And yeah. that's, that's why people do pay for it, because it's worth reading. And so like, actually that paywall... Okay, it's extra friction. Yes, people, you know, you might not do the big audience acquisition, but Sunday Times, um, in terms of their original news gathering and reporting, not a lot of their comment, which includes, you know, one Philip Collins, or used to rather before he got sacked. <laughs> Sorry about that, Philip. Um, that, I think, is a major, major issue. Uh, and, and you said people don't buy um, media outlets to make money. That's partly true. But at the same time, we're seeing a decline in print newspapers, print media, circulations, ability to generate revenues. I mean, The Sun in the 80s was a... The Sun funded the Murdoch expansion into the United States. It fun, it fun, Fox does not happen without the Sun, making huge profits for Murdoch in the 80s and early 1990s. Um, but that's certainly not the case now. Uh, but if you look at, for instance, monthly magazines, Monocle magazine, you know, this is a magazine launched in 2008. People said, you can't do a print product anymore. And, okay, God, it's half its advertorial, right? And uh, advertising. But it does make a profit, and it does do interesting work, and they have podcasts and whatnot. So, interestingly enough, I think you can do it. I think you can make money. I think there is a way of funding media, which is, you know, healthy and vital for a democracy. Probably not on a daily basis, right? I think the daily newspaper is something which people are going to pay for. I think you'll have the NYT, like basically a giant aggregator. But the idea that you're going to have lots of papers working like that, I think in the UK, it'll probably, probably end up being the Times. And if the Guardian wants to go down that route, they should, I think. I don't think they will, but I think they should and the FT, right? I think those are the guys that are going to survive, and the rest is just going to be unreadable crap on your phone. Like, you know, anything with, with Trinity Reach. So like mm. any of the Mirrors newspapers, the local papers, the Independent, I can't read the thing. So I, I, I think all of this is, is incredibly troubling. And we talked about it recently, actually. It was a conversation with you and I. It's very tempting. People say, there was no halcyon bygone era, you know? It wasn't, things weren't magically better in the past. Actually, when it comes to news production and, and the media and our media environment, things were better in the past, actually. When we had people paying for newspapers, um, I think they were significantly better. When we had the BBC doing original news gathering and it wasn't cut to the bone and empowering, therefore, people like Laura Koonsberg, I think it was a better product. So it's a major, major thing for, for the left to, to, to be a part of. And look, maybe you're going to ask this at another point in the conversation. I think you probably are. 
but we can't stand still on this. You know, we're talking to our audience, so I think it's important to say this. Um, recently, there was somebody who, the head of communications at the TUC, liked a tweet calling Navarro Media irrelevant and vile. Okay. And that's only half true. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's only me, right? <laughs> so I think last month we had 9.2 million views on YouTube. Nine two, okay. uh, compared to like, you know, um, Baby Shark or something, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's peanuts. But in the world of news media on YouTube, that's, that's pretty good. 9.2 million views. I think 1.7 million um, unique viewers in the UK. That's, pretty, that's, a good, that's a good base on which to grow. Now, you've got the head of communications, the TUC, thinking we're vile. Because what she doesn't understand is we aren't standing still, right? This is not the media. You have to play the game with the media environment. The right is going to do to broadcast what it's done to print. And that's the point of GB News and Talk TV. Even if those projects fail, it is going to do to broadcast what it's done to print. And if you, you know, for a long time, we've had this homeostasis where we're like, broadcast, okay. Print media, absolutely terrible. You ain't seen nothing yet. And then along comes Neil Oliver, who's like, I'm going to take on Ofcom with nothing but a sword in my hand and a, you know, turmeric injection in the other. Yeah. And Ofcom isn't a particularly, um, it's not a particularly muscular regulator. Mm -mm. I think people are under some real illusions about this. You know, Patrick Christie, I think he met, I think he, he, he said something which was, I think it was homophobic. It wasn't explicitly homophobic. Who's Patrick what, Christie? So he's at GB News. You know, they did that, their alternative match today. Oh, and he yeah. Said, he said, Gary Lineker, he'll like Brighton. They're, they're woke and there's lots of rainbow flags. Okay, it's not hateful. It's not explicitly hateful. So I can see why Ofcom... But it's not far off from Backs no. Against the Wall Boys. No, no, it's very bad. No, I'm upset, but my yeah. point is, for Ofcom, that's fine. Right? So I think, and they've, they've said that, they're not going to pursue that, that, that complaint. They had hundreds of complaints. I think what he said was wrong. It's awful. But the idea that Ofcom's just muscular regulators, look, that ain't how regulators work in this country, guys. So, uh, yeah, we're going to see lots of change, in, change in, uh, in broadcast too. And it says something to me, I think quite worrying, when, like I say, somebody who's head of comms at the TUC is calling us vile. Because, sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but somebody like that has exactly the same issue as the people at the BBC um, and, a, and a bunch of other parts of senior aspects of UK civil society, public life is they're on autopilot. They're on autopilot. They're waiting to retire. They're waiting to retire. Britain is becoming a poor country with a smattering of rich people, right? And what happens is you turn 65 and you spend all day in an M&S retail park and you go to the cafe and you have your current bun and you have your pot of Assam tea and your other half loiters around downstairs looking for a Beaujolais or a new cashmere jumper. That's life. Wonderful. I want to be one of them, okay, when I'm 65. But lots of people in senior parts of UK civil society are waiting for that to happen. And on the left, we can't afford to wait for that to happen. Because in the meantime, we're seeing a transformation of broadcast media. It's coming down the line. Do you want to know something which is happening to me a lot, which is I'm encountering older people who watch Navarra media. Mm. And I'm talking about people who are in their 60s, sometimes 70s. And because of the area that I live in, these tend to be people of colour. So it tend to be black and Asian people. And today, when I was on my way in, um, a woman stopped me. She was 67. Legend. And she said, I really love what you guys do. I started watching uh, Navarra Media during lockdown and I stopped buying the Daily Mail. And we talked about politics a little bit. And I think that how she felt about politics and her turning to us are two things which were indivisibly yeah. linked up. She'd come to this country... 54 years ago, she told me. And for the first time in her life, she thinks that things are getting worse. And she particularly singled out Pretty Patel and Suella Braverman because she saw that as a 
women of color as people who should be rising with their communities mm. instead turning on them and raining down cruelty and malevolence upon them. And so I think that's why in this conversation we do keep looping back to our critiques of politics and then back again to our critiques of media because these things are kind of one and the same, yeah. which is this woman realized that things were getting worse in this country. She saw the kinds of politics that were being espoused by people who had really made it their lives work to make things more difficult for migrants and people of color. And she made the connection to the Daily Mail and she went, I have to stop buying this. I have to stop reading it. And lots of people will, I think, disparage us and will say, you know, it's just students and East London yeah. hipsters who are into Navarro media. But I keep meeting people yeah. in the 60s and 70s who are really profoundly worried about the direction that this country is going in. And the only people yeah. who seem totally unaware of how people really feel about political media and how people really feel about politics are those with parliamentary lobby passes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think you couldn't have offered a better sort of um, anecdote there. I mean, I live in Portsmouth, right? Let me give you a few examples. Um, one night I'm walking back from the train station about half 12. A guy, I remember this distinctly, he has three mastiffs. Well, he has a canic corso, an English mastiff, and a Spanish mastiff. Now, if anybody knows, these are big dogs. Massive dogs. Yeah, big, big, big dogs. Not but like carriage dogs, right? Yeah, big. Well, a, a canic corso is going to be huge. Big boys can be the males can be really big, and the Spanish mastiff was really big. And he goes, "Oh, Aramistani, Navarra Media, I love you guys." Now, this is a guy w walking around Fratton, which is Fratton Parks nearby in Portsmouth. You know, working class part of Portsmouth. There's three dogs. And I, which is Navarra Media? Okay, uh, I was outside at uh, a barber shop guy getting a haircut, Aaron Bastani. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm a bit of a terror here. What's this, like a UKIP guy or something? A bit of banter. No, watches Navarra. Happens all the time. I was in Bournemouth at the weekend. My dad lives in Bournemouth. I was walking my dog. Somebody said, oh, I'm a Navarra media supporter. A girl in the cafe, oh, I watch Navarra media. Now, this isn't say, oh, Navarra media is wonderful. Aren't we great? I, mean, I think, Of course I think that. I think Ash Sarker is... You know, I, th I think, how the hell has she not been pinched by US networks, let alone the bums in the UK? I'm actually kicking him under the table. You can't see it. Yeah, right. So, of course, I think that. Now, I would also add, however, they're responding to a huge gap in the market, mm. right? Okay, we're appealing to those people, but that, that, that is a, an outgrowth of the fact that 80% of people in this country think that news media is shit, they don't think that they're being told the truth. They don't think that they're being told responsible journalism. They don't feel particularly informed. And they're right. And that's an insight that I think I think the right, the right gets a lot more than the left. When I say the center left, you know, if you talk to people at GB News or Talk TV or Times Radio, all these new products, LBC, LBC in particular, actually, because Global is now really going into podcasts heavily, they say the media's fragmenting. Who knows with the BBC? Might not, LBC say this. The BBC might not be here in 15, 20 years' time. And they're thinking money signs are coming in their eyes in terms of the podcast market and advertising, right? And meanwhile, people on the centre-left go, oh, but we can't change anything. We have to work with what we've got. We're fucked then, mate. If, that, if that's the approach we've got, we're fucked, okay? Give up now. Stop doing politics. Do something else. Take up haberdashery. <laughs> you know, nice walks and get your head down and stick with your job. Because politics ain't for you. 
I'm going to weave in very organically a little request for your support before we continue with this conversation. We've been talking about why people don't trust the media and we're trying to build something better, something which tells you the truth and failing that features Aaron Bastani calling people a prick. So if that's something that you're into, please go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and donate whatever it is you can afford per month because everything we do is made possible by you. We don't have any big oligarchs backing us and we don't have a paywall and we want to keep it that way. So we appreciate any money you've given us already and just consider this a little, you know, shakedown. But there's a couple of things that I definitely want to ask you, which is we have been, you know, raining fire and brimstone on lobby journalists, on the centre-left and indeed the conservative right. Is there anyone from those worlds that you look at and you go, I respect your work. I'm going to answer the question, but you have to answer it straight afterwards. Yeah, of I course. think you're going to have more interesting answers than I will. So, you know, the, the, the easy one is somebody like an Andrew Neil, right? He's the chairman of the Spectator. He's, he's an impressive interviewer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I don't think Andrew Neil happens without Rupert Murdoch. He's working at The Economist in the early 1980s. Rupert Murdoch comes along and says, do you want to be the editor of the Sunday Times? And that's, you know, his career goes, you know, um, on steroids. But, Basically, Rupert Murdoch puts a rocket under his ass. I'm sure he would have had a very successful career, but you know, Murdoch is the guy who who creates the political and media culture of the 80s, in part, right? People like Andrew Neil just hangers on. If it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. Um, and I have to say, actually, of all the people on the right who I'm impressed by, I'm impressed by, I have to say Nigel Farage. I have to, I have to. This guy, Britain's, Britain's the only country ever to have left the European Union. No other country's done this. And it wasn't done through a formal political party. It wasn't done through the Conservative Party. This guy was part of a political party which was literally made up to leave the European Union. He's achieved everything he wanted. And he's still carrying on. And that's what worries me, particularly with the fact that he's sort of now moving into, into media. And I think people are really sleeping on how far this can go. You know, the guy's now moved into media. He's at GB News. I mean, that's a separate conversation. I've got some thoughts about it. I, I can see a world where they become a more popular news channel than BBC News. Because it's a different product. It's entertainment. It's entertainment. The BBC News Channel is not trying to be entertaining, right? GB News is. And for most people out there, 65 million people, and by the way, to become the leading news channel is quite easy because not many people watch rolling news. I, I, I can see if they're willing to throw enough money at it, they'll do it. Of course, the point is audience acquisition and making a profit, two separate things. But if they have the financial backing to lose money for five years, they will be bigger than the BBC News Channel, I think. Certainly bigger than Sky. So. That's really worrying, right? If somebody like Farage can build UKIP and now he's going into the media, I think there's justification to be concerned. But of all the people, to really answer your point of who I'm impressed by, it has to be him. Because he's built stuff. And he's been willing to defy the consensus on so much. You know, I remember seeing him weeks before the, the referendum in 2016. And somebody said, oh, the I've said this to you so many times. You know, somebody said, oh, the IMF say this will happen if we leave the European Union. And he said something which... For, for the media class, they don't grasp. Most of the people watching will be on his side. He said, who the hell are the IMF? Another one, another one of these acronyms saying what we can do. Nobody watching this has heard of the IMF or even knows who they are or even what the, those letters stand for or who heads it up or what its mission is. It, it's irrelevant. And Sunday politics show themselves. It's the IMF, you have to listen to the IMF. Getting like, you know, little fuss pots, getting little, you know, anxiety It's like Boris Johnson saying, fuck business. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I think Farage 
I think actually in a way he opened the door to lots of conservatives who never would have said that sort of stuff in the past. And they've gone, wow, you can actually defy elite consensus opinion and, and be quite provocative and talk directly to the public. Most conservatives aren't able to do that because it's not in their political DNA. Like Prince Patel wants to, Swallow Braverman wants to. I, I, think, I think their chances, who've seen Farage do it very, very well, but I think the minute you get a charismatic conservative politician who's basically like Farage inside that party with access to meaningful political power, we have big problems, right? Like a Thatcher Mark II, which they've never, they've been in government for the last 13 years. They've not done it yet, right? And it might not happen for another decade. It might not happen for two decades. But Farage to me is the, is the guy who, he's, he's, he's transformed the nature of what it is to be a conservative in this country. I really can't state that enough. But I think this is a point which we make an awful lot at Navarra, which is how do you learn from your enemies and which ones do you choose? Like for me, the kind of opponent who I think that we've got the most to learn from is Margaret Thatcher. Right? Mm. She says economics is the method, the object is to change the soul. And I think that we live in Thatcher's Britain in a way that we don't live in Tony Blair's Britain. Right? Yeah. She was the last politician of real vision who transformed the state and what it's for. I think if you're looking at politicians of the 20th century, it's Clement Attlee, it's Margaret Thatcher. We still live in the Britain that they created. Um, when it comes to media, Rupert Murdoch, I think, has been this kind of, you know, uh, what we have set ourselves up in opposition to. Yeah. Right? We look at what he's done to the media environment and you've kind of had to go, all right, well, in order to be something of a... Uh, you know, small bit of opposition or a countervailing tendency to the poison of the sun or Fox News, you know, and the murderization of other media as well, the way in which he's changed the outlook of the BBC um, and other, other public service broadcasters, you kind of have to look at what he's doing. And what he did is he took a demographic and a generation and said, you're going to be my people, mm. right? We're in this together, mm. right? Your asset wealth is my wealth. Mm. So basically I'm going to create uh, a political environment where you guys get rich and I get richer and I will feed all of your most paranoid fantasies yeah. to keep you engaged in politics. That's what he did. Mm. And ultimately it's the thing that you say again and again, which is, you know, um, what is it? Uh, social condition shaped consciousness, mm -hmm. right? That's been the same for our audience, except their social conditions have been debt and impoverishment yep. and falling life standards. So we've had to do the kind of opposite of, of what he does, but very much being inspired by that relentless focus on that single demographic. Um, so that's, that's somebody who I think that if you are interested in media at all and you want to know what it is you're consuming where it's coming from you have to become an expert in Rupert Murdoch yeah absolutely have to be um and in terms of of lobby journalists there are some people whose work I think has value right and generally I'm not into Westminster coverage I don't like it I don't think it's good I don't think it um, enriches our understanding of the world around us. But I think that there are some exceptions to that rule. I think that uh, Gabriel Pogrand at the Sunday Times has a dedication to original news gathering. I don't agree with his politics, but I think that he's someone who's committed to original news gathering. I'd put Pippa Crera in a similar category. Mm. She's clearly dedicated to original news gathering. And Adam Bienkov is somebody who is within the lobby, he's at the Byland Times now, who is quite happy to not go with the consensus yeah. of his colleagues. Yeah. And those are three individuals where I'd go, if you want to keep up with Westminster politics, but you don't want your brain to be filled with horse shit, yeah. I would say those are three to follow. Yeah. 
Um, I'll just say one more thing as well. Because yeah. I said Farage, and that's kind of politics media. You say Murdoch, I think Murdoch's spot on. I would add one more figure who potentially people in the UK aren't familiar with, which is Roger Isles. And this guy was the, the chair of Fox News, an amazing book by um, Gabriel Sherman called The Loudest Voice, which then becomes a TV adaptation, a drama series with Russell Crowe playing Roger Isles. Really good TV. Uh, but it's also a really good book. And this is a guy who basically um, grows up, becomes an adult in light, light entertainment. He gets involved in TV in the 60s and the 70s, light entertainment. He's making these TV shows, chat shows, you know. And by the time you get to the late 1990s, he's like, why don't we do this with politics journalism? Like, this is clearly, this is clearly much more interesting to people than BBC News, right? And it goes to show GB News is trying that now 30 years later in this country with much less of a budget, it should be said, than, than Fox, which just went, you know, all in. And, you know, Roger Isles is the person who I think actually creates broadcast news as we understand it today. So that ticker at the bottom of the, of the TV. Oh, the Chiron. Yeah, like when a, a breaking news story happens, Roger Isles. 9-11, a plane goes into the first or second tower. He says, exactly, we want, you know, like, he says a ticker because it's like breaking news, it's like market data. Let's have it with what the president's now saying about, you know, a second tower being attacked. The man's a visionary who's also an appalling human being. Like he was kicked, he was kicked. You have to be really bad to be kicked out of Fox for bad behavior, right? So I'm not suggesting he was any- Serial sexual <clears throat> harasser, That's right? That's right. Awful, awful man, awful human being. And that all comes across, by the way, in the, in the TV dramatization. Um, but there's a lot to learn there. This was a guy in the 60s, 70s, in light entertainment. He saw the direction of our culture, I think for the worst, by the way, over the following 40, 50 years. And he rode that to a certain political end as a conservative, if we have 20, 30 young people today watching this, listening to this in the orbit of Noir Media who do something similar, you know, and that is ultimately how you change how you change the world, right? It is not always just about entering, you know, the Labour Party, being an MP, voting for stuff. Roger Isles has had a far greater impact on the world we live in today than any Republican, you know, senator or member of Congress. Uh, of course, the same with Rupert Murdoch. Oh, I think that's all we've got time for today. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure being being uh, being accompanied by, without doubt, I must say, the most charming person in the UK media landscape. Oh, shut up. You, but, you, but you have to be. You have to be. Otherwise Second only to you. You won't be invited back on. You have to be. Yeah. And one day I'm going to write a book about all the fucked up shit I hear in the green room because there's a lot of it. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.